0: I'm Dr. Stephanie Martin, Maternal Fetal Medicine Specialist and Medical Director at Clinical Concepts and Obstetrics. Today, I want to talk about massive transfusion and the lethal triad. So in obstetrics, we see a lot of hemorrhage. We manage a lot of hemorrhage. We do a lot of transfusing and sometimes massive transfusion but i'm not sure that we always understand what the issues are with massive transfusion and and the importance the significance of avoiding the lethal triad so i want to go over some high points and some some key issues when you're massively transfusing a patient so let's start with what do i mean by massive transfusion i mean i think we all kind of know what massive transfusion is when we see it but what's the definition um, classically, we define it as getting three units of blood in one hour, so a patient hemorrhaging significantly enough to require three units of blood in, in an hour, or 10 units of blood over, the, over 24 hours. So you might have a patient that gets two units, of bl- two units of blood in the operating room, but continues to bleed once out of the operating room, and over the course of 24 hours is getting 10 units or more um, of uh, uh, transfused. Now, when you're massively transfusing a patient, there are really some key things you need to avoid, and we call this the lethal triad. And they consist of coagulopathy, DIC, hypothermia, and acidosis. Now, these things kind of all run together and they can feed each other, which is really important to understand. But when a patient develops coagulopathy, hypothermia, and acidosis in the setting of a massive transfusion situation, mortality rates are very, very high. So we want to do everything we possibly can to avoid that lethal triad, coagulopathy, hypothermia, and acidosis. Now, after 10 units of blood, Coagulation proteins have dropped to about 25% of normal. So that means all those clotting factors that we need to to clot our blood are dropped by about 20. Are about 25% of their normal levels. Our platelet count has dropped to about 50%. But you don't see a significant thrombocytopenia until about 10 to 20 units are transfused. And this is one of the reasons why, with most mass massive transfusion protocols that you guys may be familiar with. Platelet administration is not number one on the list. That comes a little bit later in the transfusion process, and that's primarily because significant thrombocytopenia doesn't develop until later. Our first priority is to correct um, red blood cells uh, and coagulation proteins, all of our clotting factors. Now, acidosis, let's talk a little bit about how this, uh, the significance of this and how it can happen. So acidosis develops primarily from poor perfusion. So if you are not circulating adequately to your tissues and to your organs, those tissues are going to have to go into an anaerobic metabolic state. And the byproduct of that is acid formation. And so the patient will get progressively acidotic. Now those hydrogen ions that are formed directly interfere with the ability of the body to co- to clot blood. So these com- these complexes of of, uh, clotting factors that develop require calcium and negatively charged phospholipids. And the hydrogen ions are going to impact that and prevent these coagulation complexes from forming. And the result is that you get delayed production of fibrin. The fibrin structure is altered. And it's much more likely to break down. So they're susceptible to fibrinolysis which leads to increased byproducts, fibrin split products, which cause their own issues, which we'll talk about in another podcast. Now, hypothermia is also a significant issue. If a patient becomes hypothermic, you start seeing a pretty profound effect on how the platelets work to control bleeding. So platelets have their own function in controlling bleeding that are separate from these coagulation complexes from our clotting factors, and hypothermia can affect that. And this starts somewhere around 34 degrees Celsius body temperature. It also, if the patient gets hypothermic, it it's not going to stop at the platelets. You will also have um, difficulties uh, with these these the lysis processes, the enzymatic processes that happen when the coagulation co ca- the coagulation cascade are significantly affected by hypothermia. And I want you to take a minute and think. Let's go through a scenario and think about how hypothermia can easily develop in these patients. So let's say you have a patient that's bleeding. You've given her six units of unwarmed blood. That's one degree Celsius drop in in body temperature. For every 40 minutes that the abdomen is open, and that's gonna be a pretty typical cesarean section, maybe a little bit less than that, but certainly if you're doing a surgery, cesarean section, and she starts bleeding, you can expect she's gonna be open for at least 40 minutes. That's another degree Celsius drop in body temperature. So if you have a patient who gets 10 units of blood and an hour of surgery, not outrageous in a hemorrhaging patient, that's going to translate to about a 3, three degree Celsius drop in body temperature, and they're going to be coagulopathic. Not good. So she's hypothermic and coagulopathic. So now we've got two of the components of our lethal triad, just from giving our patient 10 units of blood And having her abdomen open for one hour, three degrees Celsius drop in body temperature. So we want to keep that core temperature above 35 degrees. And this is why we make such a big deal about giving warmed blood and making every effort to try and warm the patient during surgery. Don't wait until she's cold. Keep her warm prophylactically. Now, coagulopathy, in most of these situations, we're talking about massive overwhelming consumption of clotting factors. So the patient has started bleeding. She's using all of her abilities to try and clot her blood and stop the bleeding. If the patient develops acidosis and hypothermia, both of those are going to worsen the coagulopathy. We talked about that before. So now we've got this lethal triad of hypothermia, coagulopathy, and acidosis. Now how are we going to know if our patient is coagulopathic? Well, clinically you can know it by looking to see if clots are developing. If you don't see clots forming, if you're massaging that uterus and just pure liquid blood is coming out, your patient may be coagulopathic. If you're seeing clots, that's not a bad sign. I don't want her bleeding. Please don't misunderstand me, but clots tell you at least that she has the ability to form the clot. But really you're going to have to assess this with labs. And the key assessment, the key way to tell if a patient is coagulopathic is fibrinogen levels, okay? So fibrinogen, if I had one lab test that I could do on a, quote, DIC panel, it would be fibrinogen levels. Because if our fibrinogen levels are in normal range, then my patient is not in DIC yet. It can happen fairly quickly, but she's not in in DIC yet. Now, I want you to remember, pregnant women should have very elevated levels of fibrinogen, well in excess of three to 400 milligrams per deciliter for a pregnant woman. So if a pregnant woman comes back with a fibrinogen level less than 300, my antennae are up. I'm concerned. I want to know why those fibrinogen levels are are low. She, if she's hemorrhaging, then I know that she is consuming fibrinogen. If her pr- fibrinogen level is less than 100, then we've got a significant problem and my patient is now uh, coagulopathic. Now, our minimum goals when we're massively transfusing a patient, if you just want to talk about lab levels, hemoglobin above 7. She does not have to have a hemoglobin that's perfect. She just needs to be able to have adequate oxygen-carrying capacity, um, and, and uh, as 7 should suffice. A platelet count above 50,000. Again, it does not have to be perfect. It just needs to be above 50,000. We want the fibrinogen level above hundred. And we want that PT-PTT to be less than one and a half times control. Now, I get asked all the time, how do I know how much blood to transfuse? And my answer is always, number one, keep putting the blood in until the blood stops coming out. So if you've got a patient that's massively tra- hemorrhaging, you're going to be massively transfusing. And that means just keep giving them blood until she stops bleeding. Now, you're going to back that up with labs. And your massive transfusion protocol should have that information, that that process built into it. But we're going to be targeting the lab levels that I just said. But don't hesitate to transfuse your patient if she's continuing to bleed until you've gotten the bleeding under control. Her vital signs are where you want them. And we've reached our minimum goals from a laboratory perspective. So I hope this brief overview of this lethal triad and, and our primary goals of massive transfusion. It will help you uh, with your next patient scenario. Until next time.